Hey, welcome to another podcast. Before we get started, I want to tell you about two events that we're running. The first is a puppy selection and training webinar on August the 9th. That is the first webinar I've ever ran publicly. I've ran webinars for groups before, but I've never actually ran anything that was just available to anyone. So I'm really excited to do that. I chose this topic because it's really relevant to me right now, because obviously I'm training Onyx up. I'm posting that a lot on social media. And a lot of you have followed my journey of getting her from Germany, etc. So it's really kind of top of mind right now. And yeah, I think it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. So you can sign up for that in the show notes, or you can just go to my social media and you'll be able to find a sign up link pretty quickly, I would imagine. The other event I want to tell you about is an introduction to bike drawing with Catless Chevalier on October the 7th that we're running in person here in Bristol, England. You can sign up for that by going to houndplus.com dot com clicking the events tab and then you'll be able to see it there and sign up so that's h-o-u-n-d-p-l-u-s dot com uh it's going to be great fun i think bike drawing and scootering is something that a lot of people want to try but it's kind of intimidating to start there's so much to learn and you don't want to buy all this equipment and then you know not really know what to do so this is going to be a really good opportunity to to discover a new way of exercising your dog and it's open to anyone you don't have to have a husky or anything like that so today i'm talking to alison skipper and this is a really exciting podcast for me because alison is someone i've wanted to speak to for a while i think she's fascinating i think she has so much knowledge on the history of pedigree dogs it's it's ridiculous so i'm really excited about this podcast and i think you're gonna love it Let's get started. Hey, Alison, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to have you. As I was saying before we started recording, this is my kind of more recent obsession over the last few years um, is, you know, delving into both the history of pedigree dogs, but, you know, also some of the issues that have come about from closed registries um, you know, the importance of genetic diversity, uh, the changes in breeds through history. Um, sure. So yeah, I'm, I'm dying to get into this conversation, but maybe before, uh, maybe before we get going, you could kind of introduce yourself to people that haven't heard of you. Yes, of course. So my name's Alison Skipper. Um, I'm a vet. I've been a vet for a long time until recently. Um, I've worked in, um, general practice though. I've currently moved over into a role at the Royal Veterinary College. Um, I've been involved in sort of grassroots pedigree dog health work um, for a really long time as well. Um, And it was sort of through my involvement with that that I took a rather unusual route and did a PhD funded by the Wellcome Trust on the history of breed-related disease in pedigree dogs. Um, So I'm now um, trained as both a historian and a vet, which is a pretty unusual combination. Um, And I use both skill sets um, in various activities within the world of pedigree dog health now. Uh, Am I right in thinking that you have actually done some work with the Kennel Club as well? Oh, yes. Yeah, I do a lot with the Kennel Club in various ways. Yeah. Yeah, I I thought so. I found out about you through uh, Jessica Heckman's podcast, and I don't normally even kind of mention that, but uh, your podcast with Jessica were just 
incredible. Uh, it's, you know, obviously you did the one about brachycephalic breeds, but uh, maybe some, the other one was maybe a little bit just closer to my heart, which is the, the uh, you know, talking about closed registries and, and, and stuff like that. You know, you, you spoke a little bit then about um, breed related health issues. You know, what, what do you see as being like the current landscape of things? You know, are there, is there, you know, how would you kind of characterize that? Do you think that, you know, what issues are we facing right now with dog breeding? Oh, where to start? Um, lots. I mean, lots of issues, obviously. So um, within the world of breed-related disease, um, you know, you, as you've sort of um, implied, you can basically divide that into diseases that are related to body shape um, in various ways. Um, and that diseases that are more directly, I mean, obviously a body shape is inherited, but diseases that are are more um, straightforwardly inherited and that are not necessarily, well, that maybe that's not the best way of putting it, diseases that are not necessarily related to body shape, but are inherited in other ways or issues of, of closed gene pools. And obviously there's some, some overlap between those um, uh, problems, but they're not at all the same. Um, and then there are many issues related to dog breeding that are not particularly related to um, breed, um, uh, welfare issues to do with supply, um, uh, the grey market, puppy smuggling, importation and the welfare issues associated with importing puppies for trade under age, all that sort of thing. Um, so I, I think and and the um, fallout which we're seeing at the moment of the welfare issues of the puppy boom over COVID, um, where there's you know real issues coming through now with um, poorly socialised dogs that were maybe sourced from bad breeders and then reared under lockdown conditions by novice owners who've suddenly gone back to work and the whole absolute um, Pandora's box of issues that's relating from that, um, as, as well as all the you know ongoing problems that there have always been about unethical breeding and and so forth. So it's a nightmare, I think, is perhaps the the summary. There. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually an interesting rabbit hole. I didn't see us going down, Alison, already, which is the pandemic puppy stuff. You know, is something that that's literally our job. You know, we have a dog training company. We're working with dogs that are exactly what you said. They're under socialized. Also, a lot of people didn't really do a lot of training at that time because because it was harder to get to a training class. Although, you know, uh, the counter argument to that is a lot of dog trainers were doing online training, but, you know, there is limitations to that, of course. Um, now, one thing that we're, or I'm seeing a lot of recently when I speak to people that are in breeding dogs is, is a lot of people seem to be having this conversation about it being a lot more difficult right now to actually sell puppies because... Or this, you know, a lot of people will say it's because everyone that wanted a puppy went out and got a puppy during the pandemic, and now the demand is much lower than it than it was previously. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yes, I'm sure a because of that, and b because of the cost of living crisis. Um, you know, if people are worried about their mortgages going up, I mean, a lot of people who are maybe getting a dog for the first time are perhaps people in the sort of young family stage of life who are very likely to have mortgages. Um, if they're worried about housing security or um, income, inflation, mortgage interest rates, the first thing you can economise on is not committing to a new major expense that you don't have to have right now, isn't it? 
Um, so, and, you know, a- any boom is always followed by a bust, isn't it? All those people who maybe thought two years, three years ago, right, this is the ideal time to get the dog I've always wanted. They've either got that dog or thought better of it. They're not going to be wanting another one anytime soon, are they? So I think it's absolutely no surprise that um, the demand has plummeted. I think that was always going to happen um, as we as we sort of got back to post-pandemic normal, for sure. I imagine that there have probably been times through history where maybe the demand of for dogs has plummeted in similar ways right you know absolutely what, in in his yeah. in history how long and I, I guess every situation is unique but historically how long does it take before things start to equalize you know is it is it a situation where it can can take you know i don't know you know is it uh, 18 months is it five years you know is it w- well i mean the two the the two times in history before where there's been a sudden dramatic change in the demand for dogs of the First and Second World War. Um, The First World War was even more dramatic than the Second um, because um, there was a a really dramatic um, change in public opinion about dog ownership. It was by, by sort of... So the First World War, in case anyone doesn't know, was 1914 to 1918. And by about 1917, um, when you know there was shortages of food and the war had been going on a while and people didn't know when it was going to end, there was a real feeling that dog ownership at all was unpatriotic. Um, and dog numbers, you can see it in Kennel Club registration figures, but it also, if you read the press of the time, dog numbers absolutely plummeted. Um, the kennel club stopped registering dogs for a year or so, um, and particularly bigger breeds, um, their populations were absolutely decimated um, because, of course, bigger breeds were at that time very often largely bred by um, gentlemen breeders with large kennels full of staff, and their staff were young men who'd all gone off to war. Um, and that was the end of a lot of the dogs. They cost too much to feed and there was no one to look after them, whereas you know, little tiny dogs that were maybe more kept in urban environments by women um, didn't suffer the, quite the same impact. And then at the start of the Second World War, um, there was a mass panic. Um, a historian called Hilda Keynes written a book called The Great Dog and Cat Massacre about this, where people who could still remember the First World War, a lot of them rushed out at the start of the Second World War and had their dogs and cats euthanized. Um, uh, in fact, my mum, who is now 97, but was 13 when war broke out, um, she re- remembers this happening as a child, that she, she lived in Chiswick and there was a neighbour with a couple of beautiful boys apparently who got them put down the week war broke out this was down to a i heard that this this was down to a misinterpreted government announcement where they kind of they made a statement about pets you know during war times and they didn't really anticipate the reaction that came about is that right I think it, yeah, I think it was large, largely social contagion. Yeah, that people um, reacted um, what was what turned out to be completely unnecessarily because um, there never was, um, you know, restrictions on dog ownership or a complete absence of any sort of food available for dogs. I think the sec- as far as I understand it, the First World War was much worse in that regard. Um, but the Second World War was was very much a cultural panic more than anything else. Anyway, so population numbers 
did um, reduce dramatically during the Second World War as well. And if you look at registration figures in both the 1920s and the 1950s, as the, the country recovered after those wars, um, they increased pretty rapidly. Um, I mean, dogs have a short enough generation span if you're trying to churn them out quickly that you can increase the numbers pretty rapidly over two or three years if that's what you're seeking to do, obviously. Mm, there are also parallels to now as well, because I think over the last however many years, I don't I, I don't really know, but you, when you look at the population trends of dogs, you see a, popu- a, um, a progression towards popularity of small dogs versus large dogs, you know, with a lot from what I was reading, the, uh, the, the amount of large dogs registered has been decreasing, you know, for quite a long time, really. And I, I heard the hypothesis that that's just because people are living in cities more and have smaller houses. I don't know if I think partly, and, and there are way fewer of these big kennels that there used to be, even up to the sort of 1960s, 70s, I suppose. Um, I mean, certainly in the first half of the 20th century, there were lots of, you know, comfortably off people whose hobby was breeding large numbers of large dogs with staff who did all the dirty work, literally. Um, There was a a, um, magnate called Gordon Stewart, who had a kennel of Great Danes in Surrey between the wars, and he had five or six hundred Great Danes, if you count the puppies, um, with, you know, what by the standards of the time were absolutely excellent welfare conditions. He had dozens and dozens of staff in uniforms looking after these dogs. But, you know, there aren't many people who, even if they wanted to, could um, run establishments of that sort of size today. I can't even imagine, you know, that number of dogs. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess they were probably kept in kennels, right? And, oh, of course, of yeah, course, yeah. Just, but, you know, but the amount of kennels you would have to have, though. Yeah, but I mean, you know, if you have 50 or 60 staff looking after these dogs, um, you can, you know, the, he had, uh, he did fancy training with them and, you know, demonstrations for charity and, and, and whatnot. They were very famous at the time, but that, sort of style of um dog breeding just doesn't exist anymore in in the same way i was just about to ask that yeah you know is there anyone breeding at that scale now because i mean maybe other than really unscrupulous breeders potentially well no no i mean (laughs) i don't i don't think there's any way to afford um the sort of staffing levels that you would need to do breeding at that scale so this wasn't a profitable thing then I've, I don't know what the figures were, but largely it was his hobby. I mean, I'm, you know, uh, he, he was running it off the back of his business, not as a money-making effort. No, not at yeah. all. Oh, wow. This is this is interesting. A complete uh, change in conversation, but has anyone ever deliberately bred for pet dogs? Because it seems to me that there's been a lot of, um, you know, you hear about show lines versus uh, working lines. Um, and you know, one of the conversations that I've been having recently is, uh, a lot of people say that with the, the, um, kind of advent of the spare neutering campaigns and the push to have that done, there's a lot less families that are just breeding dogs for just because they have two nice dogs. And as a result of that, you have less pet dogs and more working line show lines, and then pet owners just kind of 
taking what is out there if that makes sense you know as, a, as opposed to anyone really deliberately breeding pet dogs well i think the big hole in that argument is what are all the designer crossbreds if they're not deliberately bred pet dogs i mean they may not be bred necessarily particularly ethically but they're definitely bred specifically for the pet market so i think you know for what, what of what you've just said i would say that's partly true that there's there's plenty of deliberate breeding for the pet market now but it's largely breeding for profit um uh, to uh, satisfy the demand for you know at the moment say doodle crosses or dogs of novelty colours in French bulldogs, that sort of thing. Um, most of these dogs are obviously not suitable for work and they're ineligible for show because of what they are. Um, mm. So they are definitely bred for the pet market. But I think it probably is true that there are a lot fewer people breeding as a hobby on a small scale. Um, and I think that's partly uh, you know, the world changes. Partly some of these people are deterred by um, the impact of regulation, such as breeding licensing and that sort of thing, which um, is the sort of thing that, you know, legislation for intended to advance animal welfare can sometimes have unintended adverse consequences as well, because it impacts different groups of people in different ways, if that makes sense. Um, and I think there are quite a lot of people in, in the sector who are now saying that we should be encouraging, you know, there's been such a mantra that all breeding is bad, but dogs have to come from somewhere. Um, and um, if there's not enough supply of ethically bred dogs, well, where are people going to get dogs from? They're either going to get them from un unethical breeders or rescue. And if there aren't enough dogs of the sort they want in UK rescue, then they're going to go overseas, which is another can of worms. So there, there's a real case for encouraging and supporting small scale ethical breeders who are breeding with good welfare and adequate health testing and all that sort of thing. Um, but, that, but that's something that obviously is very difficult to organise on a, on, you know, on a scale that would actually make a difference. That's the problem. Yeah, I think also there's not so much of a selection for temperament as we would like within the designer crossbreeds. You know, you see so many dogs with health issues and uh, temperament issues, you know, the amount of... Uh, cockapoos for example that we see for resource guarding is through the roof you know um, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah uh, which is not uh yeah so i mean although i guess you're right they're breeding for the pet market there's not really much selection pressure beyond like the way they look which is no totally not and i, I completely agree with you no offense to anyone listening who's got a cockapoo but uh, i i have two miniature poodles myself um but miniature poodles are not easy dogs not all cockers are easy dogs um and you know the cockapoos seem to have been bred for amount of hair production um as much as anything else and, and definitely not as much for temperament as one would hope mm. um it, it's a real issue i think yeah i'm not really a um i'm not someone that hates designer crossbreeds as a concept you know i think it, it doesn't bother me um but i do i I just don't like poor breeding, <laughs> you know? um, but it, the concept of crossbreeding is certainly, you know, not, and the concept of breeding for pet dogs, I don't think is aversive either. Um, but you, you mentioned that uh, you kind of, 
you touched on there this this idea of uh, population because a lot of I think there's a a little bit of debate in the dog world and, and I don't know if anyone really talks about this but there's there's been a message for a long time that uh that the world of dogs is overpopulated we have too many dogs and that's why there's so many dogs in rescue centers um but that doesn't really seem to marry up with what you actually see when you get out there and exactly what you said that we're import we're importing more dogs and they seem to be getting homes um sometimes i've had experiences with some rescue centers where i've heard of dogs getting hundreds of applications obviously through covid it was actually hard to get a dog you know because there was so much demand at that time um do you have any thoughts on on that you know are we overpopulated with dogs or or have we not got enough dogs well i think we don't necessarily have the dogs that you know, I think there's a mismatch between the dogs there are and the dogs that are needed to some extent. Um, the current estimated population um, is 11 million dogs in the UK, um, which is a couple of million more than it was um, a few years ago. Um, I think the rescue problem, you know, it, it's certainly very commonly said that the major UK rescues have become so stringent in their rehoming criteria that it does actually impede adoption by people with maybe, um, you know, slightly, um, you know, a non-ideal um, housing arrangements or something like that, who nevertheless would make really good homes for some dogs. Um, also, of course, some people want instant gratification. They're not prepared to wait. You know, if you want a, if you want a well-bred puppy of a certain breed, it's really unlikely you're going to be able to get one instantly um, for many, in many breeds. And a lot of people just aren't prepared to sit on a waiting list for a year. They want something yesterday, you know. Um, and then um, uh, There'll, there'll often be a large supply of a certain type of dog, which isn't necessarily what a lot of the available homes are looking for. Um, you know, certainly a little while ago, there were absolutely loads of staffies and staffy crosses in, in rescue around us. But a lot of people looking for dogs who just didn't want a dog that was that high energy um, or of that type in some cases. And and so, again, it's it's a really complicated problem. Yeah. So poodles are your thing, huh? Not exactly. Um, I, I um, uh, the, I've, my poodles, are, my current poodles, are nearly sixteen and thirteen, um, and the old one was my daughter's thirteenth birthday present. But the daughter's long since grown up, and left home, got married, and I've still got the dog. So <laughs> that's the way it goes. Yeah, she's been a great dog. To be fair, she's got lots of character. <laughs> you know, the other um, the other thing that people bring up with. You know, so we spoke about overpopulation, but also a, a, another thing people bring up is um, this idea that pedigree dogs are always healthier than crossbreed dogs, or crossbreed dogs are always healthier than than pedigree dogs, and that's another area where people will argue. You know, and I think oftentimes it's what people have had historically. You know, people that have always had pedigree dogs will argue for pedigree dogs, and people who have always had crossbreed dogs will argue for crossbreed dogs. Yes, and I mean people very often not just about dogs but about all sorts of things generalized from their own experience don't they 
And your own experience may or may not be typical of the wider picture. But of course, we're all influenced by what we've experienced ourselves. So if you happen to have you know, a dog in either category that was particularly healthy or unhealthy, that's going to skew your judgment, of course. Um, uh, but I mean, I, th I think there are certain issues that do apply to some pedigree breeds. Obviously, there are breeds which do have physical compromise because of their body shape. Um, there are breeds where the level of inbreeding can be problematic, um, but it absolutely isn't true that every pedigree breed is necessarily less healthy than every non-pedigree dog just because it's, it's got um, you know, a pedigree. Um, and it certainly is true that dogs that have you know, designer crossbreeds or of no particular breed at all can still have health problems. Of course they can. Um, so I think it's something that, that people get more worked up about than perhaps they necessarily always need to. To me, it seems like it's just one data point, right? Like you're just talking about pedigree versus crossbreed and you're going to have healthy and unhealthy individuals within each group. But um, but it isn't, it is it is not an unimportant data point, though, because, uh, you know, if you have um, you're talking about the difference between a dog that has less inbreeding and a dog that has more inbreeding, right? Potentially. Well, well not not entirely. I, if someone comes from a puppy farm or something like that, but generally. Yeah, exactly. Generally. And, and, and it's going to depend on your breed, isn't it? Um, some, I mean, obviously, inbreeding is an ongoing major problem in a breed with a really small population. Um Inbreeding isn't necessarily going to be such a problem in Labradors, say. It might be within, you know, some particular subgroups of that population. Do you, do you know off the top of your head the the average genetic COI of Labradors? I, I don't I don't know. No, I don't know the coefficient of inbreeding of because, Labradors without looking it up. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a that's a hard question. But but when you look through because um, Embark published their average COIs, because there's difference of course when you have the pedigree COI versus the genetic COI. But the the uh, genetic COI scores are, are shocking. I, I actually haven't seen a breed where it hasn't been shocking. You know, like it hasn't been shockingly high. Yeah, um, and it depends as well how they're calculated. Whether they're calculated on on the on the molecular genetics on the DNA, or whether it's calculated on pedigrees. And if it's calculated on pedigrees, how many generations back you go? Um, of course, all those things. You know, you have to make sure you're comparing like for like if you're talking with somebody about it. But yeah, I mean, as, as I'm sure many people who are listening will know, there's a thing called the effective population size, which is a geneticist's complicated way of calculating how many sort of um, in separate individuals a, a given population represents genetically. And that's often a staggeringly small number for um, many pedigree breeds. I think the thing that most people don't realise is that the process historically that created this was driven by the biological understanding of the time, um, that in the mid-20th century, biologists, you know, the, the, the um, predecessors of today's geneticists, um, the current biological thought around 1950 was that inbreeding within a closed population was a really good thing biologically. 
Um, so it wasn't just a matter of crazed dog breeders following their own ideology and ignoring the science. They were following the science of that time. Um, but what normally happens is that the ideologies within dog breeding lack uh, lag behind the science by some time for various reasons. Um, and so we're currently dealing with the biological and cultural legacy of the ideas of science of the 20th century, even though we're well into the 21st century, um, which I think is quite an interesting way of looking at it, because actually, if we were trying to do what the dog breeders of 70 or 80 years ago were doing, um, on one level, that involves also following today's science, just like they were following the science of back then. They never meant the science of back then to become fossilised. They were following current ideas at the time, or more or less, if, if that makes sense. Well, you know, and it's hard to lament them completely because there are some things that I think they did far better than us. <laughs> you know, in today's times, like, for example, Alison, we were talking via email about structure, you know, and also um, when I've heard you speak about uh, stud books and you were talking about how much more open they were at one time. Uh, yeah. Really so I just want to be a nerd about terminology for a minute. So um, it it's in, when we're talking about dogs, it's different if you're talking about racehorses, but we're not going there. When we're talking about dogs, we're, we're going to talk about breed registers, okay? Because in the dog world, the stud book is a thing produced by the Kennel Club, which relates particularly to show achievements. I think that's um, probably my experience with zoos coming in. <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. So if we're talking about the dog world and we and we want to be precise about our terminology, let's talk about breed registers because that's what we're actually talking about. So um, with um, with pedigree dogs all over the world in any country that's got a um, you know a pedigree dog culture, there is an organisation which in the UK is the Kennel Club, um, which maintains breed registers, which are the official list, if you like, of the dogs that are within that breed. Um, and um, the general perception is that since pedigree dog breeding became a thing, breed registers have always been closed. So the general perception is that um, in order to be a pedigree Labrador, both your parents have to be registered on the breed register as pedigree Labradors. And if they aren't, then that's that, that you know, you're, you're cast into the outer darkness and no matter how much you might look like a Labrador, you don't technically count. Um, but this is really um, a massive simplification of the truth. Um, and historically, certainly in the UK, when the Kennel Club first started maintaining breed registers, they weren't closed at all. And pretty much nobody knows this these days. Um, but when the Kennel Club originally started maintaining breed registers um, back in the 1870s, they were completely open and they had a totally different purpose in that they were just to record dogs for the purpose of identity in the show ring. So it was really an administrative thing to try and reduce fraud and ambiguity and confusion for dogs that were being shown, it was not primarily intended um, as a breeding record. 
And then gradually over time, um, as ideas of good breeding changed and as the show world became more established and complicated, the function of the greed registers changed and gradually they moved again, certainly in the UK, from an entirely open register to a register that was effectively more or less closed. But there was only ever actually a finite period of about 40 years where the register was completely closed. And even then, there was a technical possibility um, of exemption. And the, the breed registers at the Kennel Club have not been officially technically closed since 2012 um, and, and were only firmly technically closed in 1970. So um, for all for the majority of the time that there's been such a thing as a pedigree dog, the registers have not actually been entirely closed, although culturally they've often been largely closed, if that makes sense. You know, back in the, you know, when you were talking about that, that earliest period, um, what was the criteria for getting a pedigree or getting a pedigree for a dog? Did it have to look a certain way in order for you to register it? Or, you know, how, how did that work? Originally, there were no criteria at all. Um, you literally wrote in with your registration fee, um, providing what pedigree, what parentage details you had, which were possibly none. And that was that. Um, so and- I, could, I could get any dog... You know, I could get a Labrador and I could, uh, the, you know, obviously an unofficial dog or any dog out of the rescue centre, and then I could register it as a purebred Rottweiler, for example. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously there were neither rescue, well, there were rescue centres, I suppose. There was Battersea Dogs Home, for example, but there definitely weren't weren't Rottweilers um, right in the earliest days. Um, but yes, completely. And people absolutely did that. Um, so let's think of a breed that, was around then, so say say a rough collie, for example, which were really popular and fashionable in the 1890s, though they didn't look quite like they do today yet. Um, So if you imagine something that's sort of halfway between a modern lassie type rough collie and a border collie, that's roughly what they looked like at that point. Um, And if you wanted to show a rough collie in the 1890s, you might be breeding your own collies. Um, They were called collies then, not rough collies. Um, Or you might just um, go up on a you know trip to the highlands and find one on, on a farm that you'd like the look of, in which case you'd register it. And you'd register it under a name that you chose with the parentage unknown if you didn't know what the parentage was. Or if the farmer said, oh, yes, this is by Shep out of Jill, you'd just put Shep and Jill on the registration documents. That was it. Yeah, and you, you um, alluded to something as well, which I only found out this week. I really didn't. Re- I don't think many people know about this at all, which is that since 2012, you said um, the Kennel Club has actually allowed you to get pedigrees and dogs that aren't pedigree via the phenotyping system. You are yes. going. You have to jump through quite a lot of hoops, but it is actually possible. And I don't. I don't think many people actually know that exists. No, I mean uh, it, it's a pity because the Kennel Club it does get a lot of flack for insisting on closed breed registers when it actually doesn't. Um, it's, it's, you know, if, if, if somebody produced a dog that was typical of its breed with the right health testing um, and wanted it registered to enlarge the gene pool of that breed, the Kennel Club absolutely would approve that application, definitely. Um, and it's very much more, you're right that it's very little used, but it's largely that 
people don't apply. Oh, yeah, but I think um, there are a few reasons for that. You know, firstly, very few people seem to know that it even exists. Secondly, there's a massive cultural pressure around a lot of the ideology of today is very anti that. You know, when totally, that was yes. when that was first announced, I was looking back at some of the old forum posts and there's, you know, 23 pages of people talking about how wrong it is. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Know. Which is absolutely bizarre because when, when you sort of look back over a longer time scale, because that's exactly how dogs were bred at the point where these breeds were first established. And of course, um, the other issue is the phenotyping itself. And I understand you know, you want to set some criteria and you want to keep those people happy that are that are a little bit more purist in their views. But it's very hard to add genetic diversity whilst saying this dog has to look exactly like a Labrador versus saying having a looser standard because they have to be uh, approved by a show judge, I think. I think it's actually two show judges. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so... um. Whilst, you know, instead of just applying a looser standard and, you know, saying, uh, I don't know, just being a little bit more open about it, you know, instead of insisting that a dog has to look exactly like a Labrador, because you're not really adding a lot of genetic diversity if you're just adding in a Labrador. <laughs> no, I, I think if a breed community, uh, well, but the, you're not adding a lot of, I think the problem, well, the problem is, I think partly that you're not adding much genetic diversity by adding a single anything. Um, that if you actually want to um, enlarge the genetic diversity of a breed, you need a number of people working together um, to achieve that, um, involving um, a, a number of different outcrosses and a number of different dogs. And there are globally some efforts to do this. There's a, an international Leonberger project, for example, called Leogen that's looking at this sort of thing. And there's a group doing something similar with Bernese mountain dogs in the US, for example. Um, but I mean, one person with one dog can introduce a new gene into a breed, as happened with low uric acid um, Dalmatians, for example, where the, the gene did come from a single dog in the 1970s. But you need a com whole community to increase genetic diversity significantly. Mm. It seems like even within the current system, there are ways to make a difference. You know, for example, if you, if you have the facility to do so, you can run a crossbreeding project completely outside of the kennel club and then once the dog gets to a point where they can actually be phenotyped then try to get them pedigreed and put put into the into the gene pool well you could but as i said if that's just one dog it's not going to make much difference and also you can't insist that the mainstream breed community uses that dog um and if uh, unless the mainstream breed community is on board with a certain program and willing to embrace the ideas of that program and breed from the dogs of that program, then it's not going to make a very big difference to the um, overall population of that breed. So how um, do you change how do you change the uh, the kind of zeitgeist on this one? How can you actually get people to embrace it? Has it actually ever been done, Alison? Has, has anyone ever actually managed to to get kind of public support on this? Um, I think there, there have been various points after population crash, crashes where outcrosses have happened. 
um, in order to get the numbers up when breeds have reduced to very small numbers, particularly after the Second World War. It happened with mastiffs, I think, for example. Um, and originally, um, if you go back to the start of the 20th century, it was completely mainstream. Um, Crossbreeding was a tool that breeders had in their armory and they would use if they needed to in very much the same way as, you know, if you were cooking, you might add an extra ingredient to sort of balance the taste of your recipe. Um, you know, if breeders felt they were lacking a certain quality that they wanted in the strain that they were breeding, they would be very open to outcrossing to something or other to acquire that trait if they couldn't get it from within the breed. So uh, originally, breeds just didn't have such high strong fences around them as they do now there were there were you know it was sort of as if the breeds were fenced around by a little low uh, decorative fence rather than a great big you know secure one with barbed wire on the top um and if if people had a good reason to use a dog from a different breed they did um and it wasn't a big deal um can we get back to that and, sh and should we get back to that it depends very much who you talk to obviously there are still breed communities which very rigidly adhere to the closed gene pool idea. Um, but the idea of breeding in or, or breed in the wider world has shifted, I think, already. Um, if you if you look at what ordinary people were saying in the 50s or 60s, having a purebred dog that they would describe as purebred was a bit of a status symbol. Now, if you read what ordinary people are, are you know, saying about dog ownership on social media, they'll use the word breed to mean a Labradoodle um, or, a, or a Cockapoo. Most of them don't care at all whether the dog has official paperwork or even if it is of a breed that's recognised. Um, and uh, I think for the average person, organizations like the Kennel Club are much less in, important in their dog buying decisions than, than would have been the case. So I think the sort of wider zeitgeist has shifted. What the actual people who are doing the breeding um, are doing and thinking is another matter, of course. Um, and, and that's, again, a very much more divided set of very different subcultures than it used to be. I mean, people who are breeding, um, I don't know, say fox terriers for the show ring are absolutely different from people who are breeding border collies from agility, for agility are absolutely different from people who are shooting with Labradors are absolutely different from people breeding XL American bullies are absolutely different from people breeding cockapoos for profit. There is very little uniting those groups um, and, and you're not going to get um, all of them to change their approaches in the same way, nor do they even all need to change their approaches in the same way. So I think it's it's very much more um, fragmented than it used to be, the world of dog breeding. How do you, and, and maybe you don't have the answer, Alison, but like, how do you, uh, how do you change the culture though, uh, you know, so that people are more open to, uh, you know, more open registries? I think, well, I mean, some of the groups I've mentioned, the registries aren't a thing anyway. Um, if you're talking about this sort of pedigree dog breeding world in the, in the more traditional sense, um, 
I think I'm a strong believer that lecturing people and um, telling them off pretty much never works, um, except, you know, on the most sort of simple and direct level, you know, maybe with your own children or something. But if you're trying to educate a group that have no particular need to listen to what you're saying, um, you're not going to do it effectively by um, telling them they're wrong when they have their own culture in which what they're doing is absolutely fine. Um, so you have to engage with them by um, outreach that acknowledges where they're coming from and tries to find some common ground to have the conversation in, in in a way that's not particularly judgmental, which is where I think that history is a massively powerful tool because because a lot of these people will say, well, we've always done it like this. This is the tradition that's at the very heart of pedigree dog breeding. You go, well, actually, it hasn't always been like this at all. A um, hundred years ago, even, it absolutely wasn't like this. Um, and so you could... Um, be just as um, compliant with the traditions of pedigree dog breeding and just choose a slightly different bit of history to be compliant with, if you see what I mean, because this is something that has always changed and evolved over time. And all we're saying is um, you can change and evolve again as scientific ideas change, as new tools become available and, and sort of through reflecting about what your goals should be. Um, and I mean, I think it's it's important to think that, you know, an open registry is not a panacea. It's not like, as we've just said, dogs that are bred on open registries are necessarily automatically always healthier. The point, as I see it, is very much more, why would you deny yourself a tool for improving canine health when that tool could be available to you? Um, and if, like the breeders of 1900, you have a good reason for outcrossing, then why not do it? Because the argument of the 1950s that was a valid argument in the 1950s that you didn't know what sort of nasty things you might be bringing in by mistake and it was much better to have a, a population that you'd, um, you know, sort of purified and tested and and through through breeding, I mean, and knew what you were dealing with. Now that we have the technology of DNA testing, that's not really a factor so much anymore. You know, in the 1950s, if you'd managed to get rid of an inherited disease through a careful breeding program, um, then you were extremely careful not to let that disease back into your breed. And the classic example here is PRA, progressive retinal atrophy in Irish setters, which were the first breed community to successfully eradicate an inherited disease. And they did this in the 1940s through a sort of cop through a really rigorous test breeding program um, in which they were aided by very effective and knowledgeable leadership and the fact that the disease shows up really early. You can tell whether a, a puppy's blind or not at six to eight weeks. So it's actually possible to um, see what you're dealing with at a much earlier age than with some other conditions. And through working together, the British community of Irish setter breeders eradicated PRA from the breed effectively by about 1960. You can absolutely see why they wanted to keep the breed's boundaries rigid so that they didn't let this devastating disease back in. But we've had a test for PRA in Irish setter since 1994. Um, it was one of the very first gene tests because of the biological legacy from this previous um, effort in the 1950s. So uh, that argument isn't 
so important anymore because technology's moved on. Um, and, and therefore, I think reflecting on why people have the ideas that they do about breeding and whether those ideas should be re-evaluated re as technology moves on is perhaps the way to go. Could you tell us a little bit about why inbreeding is bad? Because I, although it might seem um, uh, obvious to people that aren't involved in dog breeding, I find it shocking the amount of people that are involved in dog breeding that still have those ideas that you just described and and maybe that's just a legacy thing but but maybe you could tell us more about that sure so um inbreeding is is if any and in case anyone doesn't know is the breeding together of closely related dogs um in its most extreme form which used to be practiced by dog breeders in the in the past it can literally involve um mating you know, father with daughter or brother and sister together. Um, and that's been forbidden by the Kennel Club for about 15 years. And um, was certainly not, you know, commonplace before that. But in its less intense form of breeding dogs together that are maybe cousins or, you know, um, more distantly connected, have a common you know, distant ancestor a few generations back or something, um, it's still often encouraged and indeed sometimes inevitable if you're dealing with a rare breed where there just simply aren't very many dogs to choose from. Um, and there are two ways, I mean, I'm not a, not a professional geneticist, but there are two ways in which inbreeding is a bad thing. One is that um, the... Um, more closely related your parents are, the more likely it is that you're going to inherit two copies of the same recessive deleterious gene, one from your mum and one from your dad. And you see this in any um, isolated community. You see it um, in certain human societies as well, where um, there's a sort of custom of marrying close relatives. Um and you see it in, as you doubtless know, zoo populations, um, that if if you if you have this higher chance of matching up two copies of the same bad gene, you're going to have a, a more greater likelihood of quite bad inherited disease. Um, and that was the case with the PRA, progressive retinal atrophy example I mentioned a few minutes ago, that the Irish setter population in the 1940s had a big problem because they had been deliberately um, inbreeding for some time to a particularly successful show dog in the 1920s who unbeknownst to them um, was carrying the recessive gene for PRA. So by the time that that dog was the grandfather or great-grandfather on both sides of multiple dogs by the 1930s, 1940s, you were getting an awful lot of doubling up on PRA and an awful lot of dogs going blind, even though the original source of the gene hadn't been affected by the disease himself. Um, and I'm using Irisetis as an example because they're a shining example of a breed community who did something about it. So they're very happy to have this history talked about because they were so proactive in dealing with this problem. The other thing um, that is less dramatic than actually having a higher level of a, of a certain inherited disease is that an inbred population has less genetic diversity. So genetic diversity is just what with, you know, no single person or animal is genetically diverse. Genetic diversity is a, is a thing that you get within a population when not everybody is the same. 
So um, you can see that if you look around at any group of individuals, we don't all look the same as each other. We don't all have the same attributes. Um, if, if there's a disease such as COVID, some of us are more vulnerable to severe illness than others of us because of genetic reasons as well as other reasons. And um, a population that's genet genetically diverse is therefore always better able to resist um, sudden new problems such as um, new diseases. And also individuals within that population um, are likely to have more variety um, within the genes that they have and therefore themselves um, are often um, more healthy in some ways than individuals from a very inbred population where you may get more doubling up on genes um, and therefore sort of more subtle biological disadvantages that aren't actually uh, a clear-cut disease if you see what i mean yeah i think there's also a lot of things and i i guess this is such a big subject we can't really cover it all but you know uh people talk about increased rates of cancer and then also on the opposite side of things you know there's hybrid vigor as well you know uh so there's, there's a lot of there's there's it's a big subject right <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So hybrid vigor is where you 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 cross two pure lines and find that the progeny um, are have a biological advantage over both the pure lines, which is done a lot in, um, say, commercial poultry breeding. Um, that you you get the best egg production from the hybrids, for example. Um, and yes, absolutely. The, the molecular geneticists are doing heaps of research now on things like cancer because there are certain dog breeds such as flat coat retrievers or Bernese mountain dogs, for example, which have a really high level of particular cancers. And it's not a single gene like PRA. It's not that simple. Yet there obviously is a strong inherited component to that. Um, and so there's an awful lot of work being done unraveling those problems, definitely. Right in the beginning of this podcast, you said one of the biggest issues that we see coming from modern breeding is uh, with like the structural changes in some breeds. The brachycephalic ones are like the obvious one that everyone talks about. We've done, I've uh, recorded episodes on that previously. I know you've spoken about it previously. It's, it's becoming more and more publicly aware, but uh my passion is really german shepherds i know you know that allison because we spoke about it <laughs> and i uh sometimes i feel like there's a bit of like an emperor's new clothes situation going on like i feel like there's only a few or something that a lot of people have their head buried in the sand about uh you know when you see the the structural changes of the breed looking at dogs from 100 years ago and today and it was really interesting actually when you said where people kind of cherry pick history because every a lot of people will go talk about the founder of the breed max von stefanitz when when they're kind of uh i don't know talking they talk about talk about how important you know preservation breeding these ideas right and yet when you actually look at the dogs from from his time versus the dogs of today I'm really not sure he would even recognize it as being a German Shepherd if you brought him forwards, you know, to, to the modern day. So anyway, so I, I kind of prepared you a little bit for this, Alison. You said you're going to do a little bit of research 
on German Shepherds, and I was hoping we could have a conversation about that because I'm I'm dying to to hear what you dug up. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean. Uh, where to start? So, I mean, yes, you're right. Obviously, they're a breed that has undergone pretty dramatic physical transformation. And, you know, it's important to say here, not all breeds have. If you look at a picture of a deer hound or a Samoid from 1900, they really don't look very much different today. So this is not an inevitable um, process. And I think in some ways, the, the German Shepherd is quite surprising, because if you look at a bulldog from 1900, say, you know, they they look different today, but they didn't look, they, they had a pretty distinctive physique, even in 1900, you could see what was there to exaggerate, and it was already quite exaggerated back then. If you look at a German Shepherd from 1920, it's, it doesn't have any of the features that cause people to be concerned today. They really are a phenomenon that's developed very much more recently. Um, and why that is, I don't know. I think the why it carries on is the same reason that any extreme confirmation in any breed community carries on, that it becomes the normal culture in that community. Um, and by the time you've become embedded in a breed community, you've imbued the culture of that community community sufficiently that that's how you see the world a lot of people blame the stack you know a lot of people say it's because of the way the dog is stacked the german german shepherds have been stacked in photos the kind of pose that they're put into has led to people trying to create more and more exaggerations in, in that in that pose I'm sure that's a factor. And certainly, you know, if, if you're trying to um, evaluate a German Shepherd that's trained for the show ring, um, the training is, a, is actually a hindrance to trying, trying to work out what's going on um, because they're so used to being put physically into different positions that they will just hold the position that they're put in in a way that a dog that hasn't been through that training won't do. Um, but it, it I mean, it's a combination of being trained to move in this in a very flashy way, pulling out in front on the lead in front of the handler of double handling of stacking, but also obviously confirmational changes that are nothing to do with training or handling. Um, and I think those confirmational changes are complicated. Um, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what the biological and veterinary issues are. And I, I don't think it's just one thing, you know. Um, but it, it, it's a really big problem. And you do still see some dogs, even within show German Shepherds, that are much less exaggerated. Um, I mean, I saw, I saw one in one of the pitch classes at Crafts this year who wouldn't have been out of, he wouldn't have been, you know, caught the eye in the 1950s. Really? Um, I'm shocked yeah. by that, Alison. I'd love to there see that picture. Uh, I, uh, well, I didn't, I, I didn't take a picture, but, um, you know, there are, and this was a dog that had qualified for Crafts, obviously, or she, she wouldn't have been there. There are, there are still dogs around that are very much less exaggerated, but they're in the minority. There certainly are in the working population, but I, I really haven't seen I can't think of, and and I and I can't. Sometimes when I post about this online, I think people think that maybe 
I haven't done my research or something. I mean, almost every evening, I, I'm obsessed with German Shepherds. Almost every evening, I probably spend three hours scrolling through pictures of German Shepherds. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, I don't. So, I don't know what the breeding of this bitch was, and you, you know, you know way more about modern German shepherds than I do. So I wouldn't have known the, what the breeding signified, even if I'd looked her up, which I didn't. So I can't help you there. It seems to me that one obvious change to make here, and I'm sure this would be unpopular with show people, is just a change to a standard four point stack, like other breeds. Would isn't isn't the stack at this point actually? like detrimenting the judge's ability to actually read the dog because the the biggest issue that we see with German Shepherds now or that is most like visual is the top line wouldn't it just make sense just to you know if that's one of the biggest things that we're assessing why do we continue to put the dog in a position which makes that so difficult to assess well I mean if you know if I ruled the world I, I'd agree with you yes absolutely <laughs> um <laughs> the trouble is that this sort of thing is really difficult to enforce. I mean, there are specific kennel club rules against double handling. But the kennel club set set the rules happens. for the showing, right? Yeah, yeah, but that's, but that's what I'm, that's my point. That double handling has been forbidden for ages, but it still happens. Um, and all these things, um, if if they're imposed without the cooperation of the breed community then there's an absolutely massive backlash. It's not easy to impose these things. I don't um, know, Alison. I'm not sure I agree with this because I feel like we we you, there has to be a line in the sand. You know, at what point do you, do you say enough is enough? We cannot continue to allow this to continue. As, for example, with the flat-faced breeds is, is the same kind of extreme situations. I I just... I don't know that, you know, uh, is, I think sometimes it's very easy for the kennel club to kind of shift the blame to the breed clubs. And and actually they're responsible for the way the dogs are showed. They they put on the events. You know, why, why you know, why couldn't they could change that rule whenever they wanted to? And sure, people will be angry about it, but isn't it just the right thing to do ethically and morally? Well, it's been... 11 years now that there have been veterinary checks on the best of breed winners at championship shows in the what were originally called the high profile breeds um, of which German Shepherd is one um, and those have definitely had an impact um, definitely in some breeds um, in shifting culture within the breed community um, because uh, um, people know that if their you know, dog has a particularly exaggerated confirmation, then it won't pass the vet check. And that has shifted what is acceptable in the show ring in some breeds. Um, how much of a difference it's made, made depends on the breed and on the problem. Um, but if, if you um, take Neapolitan Massives as one example, um, obviously there's still a dog with a lot of excessive skin and wrinkling, but the very worst ones don't appear in the British show ring because they wouldn't pass the vet check. So what's acceptable in the British show ring has altered as a result of the vet check process. I think the issue with shepherds is much more difficult because uh, the causes are more complicated. 
Um, it's so hard to disentangle, as you say, what's exhibition style from what's actually structure and function. And the dogs can look very different at different moments. So where you exactly draw that line is really hard. Um, you know, if you're looking at an excessive amount of wrinkling on a dog, that's not going to change from one minute to the next. But a German Shepherd can look completely different according to how it's standing um, and how it's moving. So that um, in some, not obviously in any case, in every case, but sometimes those those judgments are harder. Um, but it's it's a thorny problem, which, um, you know, people have been worrying about for a long time. I think the vet checks have made it. I think they were a really positive change, but I still think um, I, I I don't know because I'm I'm not a vet in that situation. But I would imagine there's some pressure, even if it's not spoken out loud, to pass some a certain amount of dogs. For example, you take a breed like the Pekingese. I mean, good luck trying to find a, a Pekingese that is a healthy, functional dog. You know, if 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 you're a, a vet charged with, uh, you know, uh, doing the health check for a breed like that, I mean, you, you're going to feel some pressure to put a dog through or, or to at least pass one of the breed. I mean, and and it's, it's shocking, really, isn't it? I mean, how some of these breeds are just beyond the, you know, it's just it's just blatantly obvious that it's, it, it's not a, a healthy form for the dog to have. No, I think it, it's 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 not an easy one at all. Um, and as I said earlier, some breeds have shifted more in response to that pressure than others, definitely. Um, but the very fact that it happens does that there is a check process. I mean, does have some level of impact and draw people's attention to these issues in a situation where it might not be so apparent otherwise. Um, we got distracted a bit from German shepherds. Um, <laughs> so you originally, before this podcast, said that you wanted to wanted me to have a look at breed registries and German shepherds. Um, so I did do that. Um, I'm and- really curious, Alison, actually, just before you finish that, um, I'm really curious when this change started to happen because I think I thought it was earlier and then you sent me a picture of a dog... I can't, well, I can't remember if it was the 50s, but you sent me a, a, a really beautiful looking dog. And I think it was a show dog that was much later than I thought. Um, the one I sent you was the 1920s. Oh, my mistake. My mistake. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and it, it was a, it's a lightly built show dog with a level top line. Um, the body's not that different in shape and shape from a pointer, I suppose, um, with a, with a sort of shepherd head on it, obviously. Um, and that's, as I said to you in our emails, that's what they pretty much all look like in the 1920s. Um, I think that's my favorite era. The, I, the, that, and I think between 1900 and, and through the 1920s, you was like, it seemed like there were a lot of really nice looking dogs. And then the the further you go in history, or the further you come to modern times, sorry, the the more extreme it gets. But I'm I'm curious if you noticed there was, you know, when when did that start happening? The the last third of the twentieth century, really. Um, they don't look so different in the nineteen fifties, but then after that, the changes that you describe start to come in. Um, 
they're an interesting breed because their popularity has has ranged ranged quite a lot. Um, and the 1920s is a particularly interesting time because they had such a population explosion then, um, very much like French bulldogs today, um, that there were pretty much no, I mean, they weren't called German shepherds then, of course, they were called Alsatian bulldogs at the time, um, which I think is a great name, but but there were pretty (laughs) much no Alsatian wolf dogs in the UK um, before the First World War. I mean, literally a handful. Um, And then um, during the First World War, um, both sides had had dogs that they used on the battlefield um and the british dogs were partly airedales produced by a, a man called major richardson who was in charge of the british war dog effort and partly any old dog he could round up because he didn't have enough airedales for the purpose um the airedales must have changed a lot between now and then i'm not an airedale person but i cannot imagine an airedale making a good military dog <laughs> well if you if you read major richardson's book he he was very pro his airedales um uh but anyway uh, despite his enthusiasm for the airedales um uh, lots of people were really impressed by the German dogs that that they saw. Um, And there was an explosion of interest in these dogs after the war, um, which was um, exacerbated um, by the media um, because of Rin Tin Tin, um, uh, who's an Alsatian um, German shepherd, whatever you want to call him, um, who was the star of lots of Hollywood films in the 1920s. Um, and I had a quick look on YouTube last night, and there's quite a few clips of him if you want to see what he looks like. But you need to be a bit careful because there was a whole second wave of Rin Tin Tin films in the 1950s, which are obviously a different dog um, or several different dogs, I think. So um, if you want to see the 1920s one, just make sure that it's a 1920s clip that you're looking at. They're all silent films. Um uh, and Rin Tin Tin has a level top line. He's quite a lot heavier than um, most of the German shepherds, Alsatian wolf dogs that I've seen images of at that time. Um, but he's, you know, a, a real athlete. Um, spends most of his time scaling fences to, you know, do heroic things and so on. Um, and he contributed very much to the popularity of the breed. So it absolutely shot up during the 1920s. So. If you if you count registrations um, as a proportion as a percentage of the total registrations of all dogs at that time, um, German shepherds or Alsatian wolf dogs went from zero percent effectively of all registrations just before the First World War to fourteen percent of all registrations in um, about 1925. Wow. So absolutely massive from none of them to more than one in 10 dogs was an Alsatian wolf dog. Um, uh, And the actual sort of um, independent numbers at at that time um, were peaking at about seven or 8,000 a year, which was a lot at that time, given that total registrations at that time were only something like 50,000 dogs a year of any Mm. any sort. But of course, um, as with any sort of um, sudden massive explosion in breeding of any breed, anytime, anywhere, 
um, this explosion in popularity came with irresponsible breeding and they bred lots of dogs with dodgy temperaments that bit people. And so there was a massive backlash against Alsatian wolf dogs in the later 1920s and they sort of went down in, a, in population dramatically. Um, and then, of course, that was exacerbated by the Second World War. Um, and then the population recovered after that in the 1950s and has peaked and troughed ever since um, and is on um, a, a downswing at the moment. Um, so German shepherds had their highest ever registrations in the mid-1990s. Um, and now they're down to um, something like about two-fifths of the numbers that there were in the 1990s. Wow. So very much less popular than they were. Um, but you asked me to have a look at them in terms of open registries. And that was really interesting because... Um, looking at open registries in the interwar years is quite labour intensive because you have to look at records that haven't been digitised and pick out which dogs' um, parents were registered and which ones weren't and count them all up manually. Um, so I've previously done it for seven or eight breeds um, and um, traced a, a sort of decline from um, in about 1910, about 45% of all registered dogs had one or more unregistered parent, which was usually the mother, but not always, sometimes both. Are we still talking about German Shepherds here? No, which meant everything. Oh, okay. So overall, every, everything of the seven or eight breeds that I've surveyed, it goes from about 45% unregistered in 1910 to pretty much zero in 1970. And there's a sort of jagged slope down between the two, with the biggest decline being up till about 1930, 1935. Um, but there's considerable variation between breeds, with the registries much quicker to close in some breeds than others. Um, and interestingly, I've only looked at a couple of months of German Shepherds just quickly when they were Alsatian wolf dogs in the mid-1920s. But interestingly, they have way fewer unregistered parents than most other breeds, even at that time. Um, so um, I think off the top of my head, it was about 17% of dogs at a time when most other breeds were sort of up in the 30s. Um, and I wonder whether that's because of the influence of German culture, whether pure breeding, I mean, you consider what was happening in Germany at that time, um, was maybe, I don't know what the German data would be, I'd be interested to find out, but I wonder whether that's part of the influence there um, or something to do with um, other aspects of the sorts of people who were breeding them. But they were very much quicker on the closed, closed registry pathway than a lot of other breeds. Um, as I say, it's not something I've investigated in any depth, so I can only speculate um, but it was something I wasn't necessarily expecting to find. It is interesting, yeah. I wonder how much as well uh, those percentages across dog breeds impact genetic diversity that we see today. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. This, this, is, this is the drawbridge being drawn up on each gene pool mm. happening mostly in the 20s and 30s. Mm. Um, so you, you can literally trace the graphs of it happening. Yeah, fascinating. Well, I'd really, I'd love to go back to a time when it was more common and we could, uh, it was a little easier to to bring new dogs into the gene pool. I think it would make a really big difference. I think it's already being talked 
uh, you know, I've been in this world a fair time now, and I think it's already being talked about in a very much more mainstream way than it was in the 1990s. You know, admittedly, that's a long time ago now, but these cultures do shift. Um, you just need to look back at how different things were in certain ways in the past, in the not very distant past, to see that there is change. And I think the more of this sort of conversation that goes on, the more people start to go, hmm, well, maybe it doesn't have to be like that. Maybe there isn't a good reason for it. Mm. I'm, I'm optimistic that these things will shift. You know, like we were talking about the structural changes in German Shepherds, you know, how you, the the uh, structure of the dog changed over the years. Has there been a time maybe in another breed where the structure has changed one way and then actually reversed it, can you think of an some, a breed where something like that's happened that's a good question um to some extent um it has happened very recently in the show bulldog population um in the the, the breed standard of bulldogs has changed repeatedly in the last few years in efforts to reduce the um, extreme conformation. And the bulldog breed community in the show ring has been more engaged with this than some breed communities. Um, and I'm not, I'm absolutely not saying that there are not issues with bulldog health. Of course there are, but there are more bulldogs in the show ring now with some tail than there were 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you you would see lots of bulldogs with no tail at all. Um, and now most of them have got a little bit of a stump, which is progress. Um, and that is because the breeders have changed which ones they're bringing into the ring and which ones they're leaving at home because of the changes in the breed standard and a, and a, a change in the breed culture. Maybe not a massive change, but a change towards thinking, yeah, they should have a bit of a tail rather than let's not worry about the tail at all. And of course, that does have a knock on impact for health because the tail is the visible bit of the spine. Um, and these dogs with no tails, like French bulldogs, have um, deformities in the spinal vertebrae associated with that. And so any incremental change that gives them more of a tail will have an impact on health to some extent. So that's the example that comes to my mind of something that has improved. Um, and there, is, there are several other subtle changes of that sort in recent years in other breeds. Um, beyond that, fashions change. So, you know, any breed that you know a lot about, you can date in some breeds. I mean, because some of them don't change, as I said a little while ago, but ones that do change, you can often roughly date the dog from its appearance according to what was fashionable in one way or another. Um, and some of those changes are, are sort of welfare neutral, I think. Um, some of them are problematic in one direction or another. Um, but I think the general tendency in many breeds has been towards exaggeration. Yes, obviously, unfortunately. Well, well, this has been a really fascinating conversation, Alison. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, answering these questions. And also that research that you did is really brilliant. Thanks so much for that. Is there anything uh, you wanted to tell people about or anywhere people can find out more about what you're doing or, or, or anything like that? Um, I think we've been pretty comprehensive in what we've covered. Um, I've got the odd publication out there, probably more in the future. 
um i think just get involved in these conversations yourselves you know this isn't this isn't um something for any one person we can all be thinking about what we want to prioritize in dog breeding and how we can go about it and the more of this sort of conversation going hey maybe it wasn't always like this and maybe we could try this in the future people are having the better i think um and, and just being open to talking to other people um i think um uh, podcasts are a really good way of maybe exposing yourself to ideas you might not have come across otherwise and i think one of the problems with modern social media is it drives you so effectively towards people who think just like you that it's actually quite hard sometimes to come across people who think about things in a different way from you um whereas back in the 1990s when there weren't very many of us online at all you were you encountered people who thought differently from you much more often because the very fact that there was somebody else out there who was interested in dog breeding meant you talked to them, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. Whereas now, um, it, it takes more effort to have those conversations between communities, but I think they're hugely valuable because that's where the dialogue that brings progress comes from. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Alison. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Lovely to talk to you, Nick. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Alison Skipper. What an incredible guest. She's a fantastic podcast guest. Before you go, I just want to tell you about two things. Firstly, I'm running a webinar on puppy selection and training on August the 9th. It'll be so good if you can come and join me. It's not expensive. It's something that, you know, we can just hang out. You can ask me questions. And I've got a big presentation that I'm going to give on uh, my thoughts on puppy selection and training, which is obviously, obviously something that's really relevant to me right now, having gone through it. And, and going for it with Onyx, my most recent shepherd puppy. Uh, well, my only shepherd puppy, but my most recent puppy, I should say. Uh, you know, I'm posting a lot about that on social media. A lot of you have kind of been following my journey since I've got her from Germany. And now I'm posting the training updates. So yeah, I'm learning a lot and I want to share that with you. So I've, I think that you'll, you'll really enjoy that. So you should, you'll be able to sign up for that in the show notes. Or you can just go to my social media and I'm sure you'll find a, a link really quickly. But check the description. I think I'll, I'll try and get a, a link to that in the description. The other event that we're running is an introduction to bike drawing with Catless Chevalier on October the 7th in Bristol, England. That's an in-person event. So there's limited tickets. It would be really cool if you could join us. Bike drawing is an incredible sport, an incredible way to exercise your dog. It's very intimidating to get into for people that don't have the knowledge or the resources and that's why we're running this event so that you can find a new way to exercise your active dog which is really gonna fulfill their needs and just be a hell of a lot of fun so you can find that and sign up for that at houndplus.com that's h-o-u-n-d-p-l-u-s.com click on the events tab and you'll find it there thanks for listening and i'll see you in the next episode